In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. I've been learning a bit about the Enneagram recently, about which many of you I know know a great deal, um, a lot more than I do at this point. Um, an Enneagram authority uh, recently suggested to me that we can most readily identify ourselves by, by the unhealthy aspect of our defining personality type, where we go to when we are manifesting our, our weakness, our unhealthiness. When that is revealed, you say, oh, yeah, that's, that's me. <laughs> um, we know ourselves by our weakness, our weaknesses when they are revealed. Uh, the Enneagram as a system I don't believe was known in Paul's day, uh, but they might have had an intuitive sense for it. But, but Paul was certainly uh, self-aware enough not only to know but also to identify himself by his weakness. Um, in today's re uh, reading from his second letter to the Corinthians, uh, Paul tells us four times, that, uh, that he is weak. Um, he is not just aware of his weakness. He draws attention to it rather than to, the thing, to, to other things like his religious heritage, um, his apostolic accomplishments. And what I found remarkable about today's readings, all of them, um, they're not about what the protagonist, the hero of the story, can do. Rather, they are about what they cannot do. Ezekiel cannot make his people listen to him. They're hard-hearted, hard-headed, and stubborn. Uh, Jesus can do no mighty works in his hometown. He can't make uh, his hometown people believe in him. He can't even make them support him. Paul is tormented by an affliction that severely handicaps him. In a season when so many of us are having to do more, our texts encourage us to rejoice in what we cannot do. Just last Sunday, I talked to one of our souls and commended her on her capacity, and uh, she returned the compliment, at least I like to think that she did. Um, in the face of challenge, we focus on what we can do. When the, do uh, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. The greater the capacity, the more impressive the person. There, of course, is nothing wrong with capacity. I'm delighted that we have so many people here of so much capacity to do so much good work. The problem of capacity is when we don't know when to stop. It is the story of Babel. Just keep on building this thing higher and higher. Nothing can stop us until God does. The problem with a, uh, it comes when a can-do mentality amplifies to, a, to an I-can-do-it-all mentality. Uh, Ezekiel, Paul, and Jesus were, were also high-capacity people. However, their biggest contributions to humanity did not arise from their capacity, their capability, but emerged from their weakness. What they were not able to do in the way of strength, God was able to do in and through their weakness, not through their capacity, but in their incapacity. In a wonderful essay by John Golden, by John Golden Day, what it, uh, Golden Day, Golden Gay, uh, what does it mean to be human? Uh, he writes, human freedom has been described as the capacity to embrace incapacity, the capacity to turn weakness into strength by realizing power in weakness. Incapacitated, it's, it's a bit of a dirty word, but not in God's economy. How many of us feel today, feel right now, 
incapacitated in some way by oldness, by sickness, despondency, depression, frustration, anger, exhaustion, broken relationships. Take heart. God will work his strength through your weakness, through your incapacity. In Jesus, God came in the way of weakness. In our gospel story this morning, this is exactly what Jesus' hometown crowd could not accept. They did not want God to become a human being like one of us. They say to Jesus, you are only a carpenter, only a son of Mary, only another one of the village children who has grown up and returned for a visit. You are too familiar, Jesus. You're too prosaic. We want more. A display of divine power, something spectacular. Jesus accomplishes his purpose on earth, not by an act of strength, but by an act of profound weakness. He dies in the way all humans die. He embodies our weakness by dying in his body. Jesus refuses to, wake, to take the way of strength, of power, by taking himself off the cross as people were taunting him to do. As Satan tempted Jesus to do in the wilderness. And Paul himself says in 2 Corinthians 13, the cross is the epitome and the supreme example of what God accomplishes through weakness. And Paul, of course, takes all his cues from Jesus. He has this ecstatic vision. We're not sure exactly what it was, but, but um, he's taken up to the third heaven. And we have some, uh, some clues in the text um, about what he sees there. Given that Paul refers to uh, visions and revelations of the Lord in, in verse 1 of chapter 12, I believe he suggests here that, that he was set in the presence of the glorified Christ. He sees Jesus, the glorified Lord. And that vision of Jesus leads him to live and serve not like the glorified Lord, but the lowly Jesus. Not a theology of glory, but a theology of the cross. And Paul's visions have a pattern Ecstasy followed by affliction. You remember his first vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus. He's incapacitated. He's blinded. And he's rendered helpless and completely dependent on the people who are with him, who have to take him by the hand and lead him to Damascus. I think this is remarkable. A vision of Jesus might not empower you. It might weaken you and help you see your weakness so that you must depend on others. A true vision of Jesus, uh, Jesus, of course, is about Jesus. It's not, it's not about me looking at Jesus. It's not, hey, guess what I saw? I got a private viewing of our Lord. I'm in the inner circle. A vision of Jesus will always compel us to help others see him instead of others gazing at us looking at Jesus. Paul knows this. He lives it. Rather than being highly thought of because of these mystical encounters with God, he wants the Corinthians to focus on how he lives and what he says. And what does Paul preach? The good news that Jesus Christ is Lord. And how does he carry himself? How does he comport himself? As a slave whose self-giving model is Jesus. And reading the text carefully, it's, it's rather humorous. He actually downplays his journey to the third heaven. He, he recounts it in a, in a playful way. He is not certain how he, how he was taken up. He does not report what he saw, and he cannot repeat what he heard. He has nothing to do with it, and he can't do anything with it, except for what it does for him personally, deep in his spirit. 
Other than that, it doesn't provide him information that, that he can use in his ministry. It's simply not useful. And he doesn't, he can't leverage it to, to gain praise from anybody. And Paul takes great pains to say that he is unlike the super apostles who have impressed the Corinthians with their boasting about their rhetorical skills, their knowledge, uh, appealing to their supernatural power and visions as proof of their superiority and the superiority of their gospel. And Paul says no. And instead of trying to match them, instead of trying to boast along with the best of them, and instead of trying to best them, Paul simply says, I boast in my weakness. And furthermore, the affliction in his side also comes from God, and he can't do anything about it either except to accept it from God as a means of grace in his life. There is not a whiff of Paul being either a hero or a victim. Just his authentic self. A what-you-see-is-what-you-get kind of person. Utterly dependent on God for his identity, for his ministry, and reveling in God's goodness and grace that rescued him, as he describes himself, the chief of all sinners. Paul's vision of Jesus is accompanied by an affliction from Jesus so that both compel him to draw all his strengths from Jesus. Where does Paul garner that strength? In prayer. In prayer, Paul receives his ecstatic revelation. In prayer, Paul begs Jesus to release him from his affliction three times. Even as Jesus begged his father three times that the cup of suffering might be removed from him. Prayer is not a release from our difficulties. It is rather a release of ourselves to God. Surrender of our will to the will of God for us. Whether it's an ecstatic vision of heaven of our Lord, a glorified Lord, or a visitor from hell, a messenger of Satan. God's grace encompasses both. And this is the paradox of prayer. Prayer drives us to our knees where our bodies are not poised for fight or flight. Prayer is a posture of incapacity, of weakness, of surrender, of submission. And that prayer is also the source of our strength. Prayer is not taking it to the Lord in prayer. It is rather God coming to us when we are completely finished, when we are too weak even to move toward him. How many of you have a grandparent who has prayed for you? It's what old people do when they can't do much else. They pray. They pray for you. They pray for their grandkids. They love them. They love you in prayer. And it might be it's all that they can do, and it's everything. I asked an elderly uh, person in our congregation on Friday. Um, I guess I could have just asked myself. Um, how they deal with their weaknesses, their incapacities. And this person said, my weakness has opened my eyes to God's presence in my life. It's taught me to depend on him, not myself, to give more of my life to him rather than trying to control it. And he said, Rob, when, uh, you have, you've got to be especially careful when you have a victory. Because that's when you're most tempted to take pride in yourself. And then he said, my day is constantly filled with prayer. Perhaps this is a time for us as a church to spend more time on our knees, praying for one another in our weakness, and trusting God to work his strength through our weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. My power 
is made perfect in weakness. Amen.